Skull Rock Podcast is brought to you by the generosity of the following companies. Sure, sound extraordinary. To podcasters, recording musicians, and streamers who are looking for studio quality audio at home or on the road, the Sure MV7 Podcast Kit is a premium all-in-one solution inspired by the legendary Shure SM7B and is designed to address the versatility required by modern creators. For more on the Shure MV7 Podcast Kit, visit Shure.com, S-H-U-R-E.com, or click the link in our show notes. Shure, sound extraordinary. And by The Old Mill Press, publishing beautifully crafted books that illuminate our world. To learn more, visit TheOldMillPress.com. And by listeners like you. This is Imagineer Ethan Reed, and you're listening to the Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, El John Go and Dave Bossert. Welcome back to Skull Rock Podcast, your show about all things Disney and pop culture. Every week, we take you behind the scenes of some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, as well as what's streaming, what's playing in theaters, and what's going on in the universe of entertainment. I'm Al John Go, musician, longtime Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars fan. Also, big fan of pop culture, and you can email me, Aljon, A-L-J-O-N, at SkullRockPodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard, artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast. You can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Al John, it's another week. We've got part two of the Andreas Deja uh, interview, which uh, I think a lot of people are excited about. And also, I want to tell you, Al John, that this week the Skull Rock Podcast is stepping out into the world. Ooh, stepping uh, out! Skull like Rock it. Podcast is going to be at the CTN Expo, the Creative Talent Network Expo, Thursday, November seventeenth, is when it kicks off. Uh, Skull, the Skull Rock podcast will be there on Friday, November 18th through Sunday, November 20th. So stop by our booth and you'll, you'll be able to tell us what you like about the Skull Rock podcast and, uh, maybe get on the air with us. I will be there in person. Oh, that's awesome. That's and awesome. Al John, Al John will be there in spirit. I will. <laughs> well, that's awesome. I mean, you know, the CTN is a great place to, to meet artists and to network and, you know, um, subject of our podcast a few weeks ago. So please go back in the show archives and check it out because, uh, Tina, right. It was Tina, um, Tina price, Tina price. Yeah. She's great. She is, she is the genius behind the CTN expo. She's and been the CTN, yeah. the, the, the whole CTN organization. Well, I love the fact that you are going remote, Dave. It's like the old days when I was in radio, when we were doing broadcast live remotes and you're there, yeah. the, the artist on the street, if you will, you know, the creative director on the street, Dave Bossert. Well, so, uh, yeah. But you know something <laughs> I got to say, it's only possible. It's only possible because of shore microphones. Oh, there you, you go. Know, they, they were kind enough to give us our portable, uh, uh, set up. That's right. No, that's awesome. So thank you to Shore and thank you for Tina because uh, this is a great opportunity. I know you attend every year and uh, you always meet these great artists and filmmakers. So it's a, an awesome thing when you can get the creative community in there. And uh, yeah, go out and meet Dave and I'm sure there'll be some Instagram and some um, Facebook posts 
about that so you can meet Dave and, and talk art and, and pop culture and the podcast and all that stuff. That's exciting. Absolutely. So, I'm so, looking forward to it. I, yeah. You know, I, I like the, those events because, I really get to see a ton of people I haven't seen in a long time. I love that. You know, it's, it's yeah. great to see those, those type of conventions where it's kind of a family reunion of sorts. Yeah. Um, yeah. Especially these days because so many of us have been, you know, still under lockdown and we haven't really intermingled with each other the way we used to. And I think now things are starting to stabilize and people are stepping out, if you will. So. Yeah, and I just want to let our listeners know the CTN Expo is going on at the Burbank Marriott right at the Burbank Airport uh, in Burbank, California. So if you're in the area, swing by and say hello. Yeah, it's like the internet, uh, the entertainment capital of the world, world there in Burbank. So uh, everybody's yeah, there out there. Awesome. Well, we have, once again, uh, Andreas Deja Month continues with part two of the sit-down interview, and it's just wonderful to have uh, Andreas be so generous with his time and to open his life up um, to all of his experiences. I mean, we're just cutting just the surface here, but uh, we're looking forward to do more deep dives with Andreas this this month. So, um, But before we get into that, we do have some pop culture news and things to talk about. Um, and what's streaming? So, what what have you been watching this week? Well, I tell you, Al John, I went off and uh, I did see um, Armageddon Time. Oh, okay. Uh, which uh, I really enjoyed. And the thing I would say about it, and I'll just let let our listeners know, uh, Armageddon Time has nothing to do with Armageddon. It's actually a coming of age story about the strength of family and the generational pursuit of the American dream. And it's really got a, a terrific cast. Um, it's directed by James Gray. Uh, Jeremy Strong, you may know him from Succession. Um, he's a terrific actor. Uh, he's in it. Anne Hathaway, uh, Anthony Hopkins. Uh, it's just a really Jessica Chastain. It's a wow. really, really terrific cast. Uh, and this is a movie, it's a small movie, you know, and, and I would tell anybody, you don't necessarily have to see this film in a theater. Um, you can see it on a streaming service, you can watch it at home. So it's, it's one of those films you can put on your, uh, list of things to watch. Uh, I would recommend it. It's, it's a good film. Uh, so I saw that in the theaters. Uh, and then what I've been watching on streaming, um, I have to tell you, I started watching the cleaning lady. Okay. Which, which is from Fox. Yeah. Uh, and it is really good. Uh, it's a really great cast in it. And I'll just give you a synopsis of what it's about. It says when whip smart C Cambodian doctor, Tony De La Rosa comes to the United States for medical treatment to save her ailing son. She soon discovers her path won't be as straightforward as she had hoped. Wow. As the system quickly fails her, pushing her into hiding, she resolves not to allow herself to be beaten down or, or marginalized and becomes a cleaning lady for organized crime. Oh. Using her cunning and intelligence, Tony forges her own path in the criminal underworld, doing whatever she has to to survive. I got to tell wow. you, this is really a, a terrific show. Uh, Alati Young plays Tony. She's really terrific. Uh, and you got Aiden Canto and Oliver Hutton, uh, excuse me, Oliver Hudson. 
uh, uh, Lisa Wells. Uh, I mean, really a, a great cast, and it's really well done. Nice. I really enjoyed this. Nice. I and like I, it. And I continue to watch it. Uh, I also watched, uh, I watched like three or four episodes of Fire Country. It's uh-huh. on Paramount Plus. Yeah. Uh, and, and I have to tell you, by the way, Cleaning Lady uh is is kind of a a, a a a sort of an interesting one because we watched uh cleaning lady uh on first season is on hbo max the second season's on hulu for some reason yeah they i don't know uh, why yeah but, they, they had changed over i guess you know yeah right yeah but fire fire country I, I decided to give this a try because it's a Jerry Bruckheimer show. That's right. And I thought, wow, Jerry Bruckheimer, this is going to be really terrific, right? Yeah. Um, it, it was awful. Oh, I mean, no. it, to the point where it's comical. It oh, really no. is. It's comical. You're laughing at the the dialogue. Uh, the the situations are just hysterical. It, it really, I, I it, it's sad because. You know, Billy Burke is in this, uh, Diane Farr. Uh, you know, it's got a it's got a pretty decent cast, yeah. you know. Uh Jordan Calloway, yep, uh Ke- Kevin uh Alejandro, uh and Max uh Theorot, yeah, I guess is how it's pronounced. Yeah. Uh it, it it's just it, it's laughable uh how uh how bad this is. They've been uh, they've been pushing that really big on CBS on the network and of course Paramount yeah. Plus where it's streaming um to the point where I guess it, it had been it was basically the follow uh, to follow what is it um uh, oh gosh what is uh, Shamar Moore show SWAT I guess yeah. and so so I mean there's a big lead in right there and um uh, that's sad that it's a uh, kind of a down I, I mean honestly there were moments where you know, characters are having, you know, a debate about something while a structure's on fire behind them. That's wonderful. You you know, I mean, it's just comical, comical. Uh, So I gave it a try. I I just can't go through much more of it at all. uh, Uh, And then I I found a show called The Curse, uh, which is on uh, BritBox, uh, which is through Prime. And I'll just give you a quick synopsis. Albert and his wife, Natasha, run a cafe in early 1980s London. They are down on their luck and looking for a way out. One evening, their lives change when Albert and his old mates meet up with Natasha's brother, Sidney. Sidney explains that he has a new job at a warehouse that handles cash shipments. He could let the boys in. They could help themselves to some cash. What they discover there is something quite different and find themselves embroiled in one of the biggest gold heists in history. Whoa. Um, it's really, it's comical and funny and uh, very well written. Uh, really, really well done show, uh, I have to say. Uh, we really enjoyed watching this. And this is a period piece that takes place in the 80s, so everything's yeah. got that look to it. Yeah, it, it definitely has that look, and uh, and they did a really good job on it. Uh, awesome. You know, this is one of those small shows, and by the way, they're half hour episodes. Oh, I love that. You know, so so and and there's uh, there's some really 
interesting characters uh, that are are hilarious, you know, and and dumb as a post. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you say heist there. There's got to be some dumbasses in there, I guess. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. It's it's really well done. So that's it for me. That's what I've been watching uh, this week. Uh, And uh, I hope hope that uh, it gives you some insights and and some things that you might want to try. No, I really, really dig your high praise of the cleaning lady. I really dig that. You know, so yeah, looking forward really, to checking that out. I got to tell you, twists and turns, man. Twists and turns. I like and, it. Uh, really well done. I like it. Yeah, this week for me, it's been more of the same, just consuming uh, more Star Wars and or, um, you know, The Handmaid's Tale still just trying to, you know, it's it's getting to the point where it's it, it's still very dramatic and the actors do such a great job, but you know, it's like, come on, you know, let's see the light at the end of the tunnel. I don't know how much more story you're going to squeeze out of this. It's like, uh, you know, the difference between something that has a longevity like law and order, where there's always going to be different situations and legal drama sure. and all this, but you know, it's like the walking dead. Like I, I love the walking dead and it's great. This is the final season of the walking dead and we're watching it. And it's like, I think it's time. You know, I think it's time, you know, after 12 seasons or whatever for Walking Dead, I think it's time. But uh, yeah, with with some of these other things like uh, Handmaid's Tale, I'm like, OK, I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> Just give it to me. Um, Wakanda Forever. I uh, saw it. Black Panther 2. And you love it. It's, I, it has a thumbs up for me. And, and, and I posted on my Instagram a thumbs up. And that's all I want to post because I know people are still getting into the theater, Dave. I know you haven't had an opportunity to see it yet. Um, but when you do, I can't wait to talk about it. So we'll talk about the box office draw of it, but I will just say that it's, um, it's, it's, it's great. There are a lot of seeds that are planted for future projects, which is part of the whole MCU strategy. But I think the story is befitting. And I think, um, fans of Chadwick Boseman are going to be very happy. Um, because of the way they treat the subject matter. So, um, Good. of course, music you know, and visuals I'm, are great, too. It, it, you know me. I don't go on opening weekends. I, I, I just don't like to go into, you know, uh, massive crowd theater, you know, crowded theaters. So sure. uh, I'm I'm actually going to see it this coming week in IMAX. Well, there you go. And uh, I think that'll be a great place for you to see it because, uh, you know, we saw it at a drive-in, of course. You know, we're like you. You know, we try to stay away from the crowds and, um, we, we love going to the drive-in the, or local drive-in theater. Cause we love the drive-in and we love, I, just- I, I love the fact that you have a drive-in theater near you. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say it's near us, but it's, it's, it's there. We, we drive out uh, of our way to support our drive-in theater because we love it. And we, we take the kids and we get all the food and we have dinner and we just camp out and we just have a great time. And so, I mean, I love the drive-in theater so much. Now, and, uh, when you go to the drive-in, do you pull in uh, head first to uh, towards the screen, or do you um, back in and tailgate? Well, because like you, I mean, we're in a cold spike right now. Okay, so okay. we we pull right in and we just sit down and we cock the chairs back and we turn up the stereo. And I've got luckily, I'm, I'm blessed with a decent uh, system in my car in our SUV. So we just pull up and bam, the kids are happy. We're having popcorn and cheese sticks and whatever else, and we're just having. You know, dinner and, and and you're listening to the sound on your radio station. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. 
Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. No more no more big metal speaker boxes that you have to hang on the window. No, we don't have to do that. No, they have the, <laughs> the, the shortwave radio and we tune in and um and we love it. So props to the Stardust Theater out in Watertown, Tennessee. We love going you uh, to that place every time there's a new release. And that's really our strategy. It's like the, the new and it's 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 great. We love that experience and it's an experience that I loved growing up, uh, going to theaters like that and um uh, we're happy to support our, our local drive-in and uh, that's awesome. The whole drive-in theater association, you know, that's, it's awesome. So, uh, but yeah, Wakanda forever thumbs up for me. And I, I think Marvel fans and just casual fans that just love a uh, big tentpole movies are going to love it. Awesome. All right. Well, that's what we're watching. Let's go ahead and get into Skull Rock Podcast, ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news. Well, this requires no spoilers. Black Panther Wakanda Forever commanding a $174 million to $184 million box office opening after this huge weekend. Wow, Ryan Coogler, I think he's knocked it out of the park, Dave. Friday gross of $84 million. And it has one of the biggest opening days of all time. Time. I mean, that's yeah. that, that's just unbelievable. Eighty-four million dollars just for Friday. Yeah, just for Friday. It ties with the uh, the Marvel Studios release Avengers: Age of Ultron for number nine on the list, not adjusted for inflation. Overseas, the film cleared sixty-four point seven million in its first three days of early global total. Of get this, one hundred forty-eight point seven million through Friday. That's huge. Wow. It's and what's the hit. estimate for the weekend? You know, uh, the weekend estimate was, I think it's supposed to be on target for 174 to 184 million. Wow. That's something else. Yeah. That's fantastic. It's yeah. great. Yeah. It says it's likely it won't reach the heights that the original Black Panther reached in 2018 at 202 million. But yeah. boy, man, they're on their way. And, um, it's just, like I said, I think it's great. And hats off to Ryan Coogler. I mean, he is just a, a great writer, director. I thought he did great in the Creed films, the first two. And yeah. uh, once again, I think this one hits all, checks all the boxes for me as a Marvel fan and just as a, as a movie fan. Good. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Right on. I can't wait to discuss it. Something that doesn't check all the boxes would be Bob Chapek. <laughs> and uh, that is according to an article you sent me here on the 24, uh, 24-7 Wall Street list. And the 24-7 Wall Street says um, the stock is down. We've heard this. It was reported, and you sent me a clip, or I think I saw a clip on CNN regarding its clip. And the Mad Money guy was saying that uh, Bob Chapek, because of the recent losses and the stock plummeting to a huge low, 13%, to 87% dollars per share i've never seen it go this low dave um it, it, it has recovered from there <laughs> i have to say yeah i was but, like i didn't have yeah, my ticker it, during the it week, was so. a bit hair raising there for a moment to watch drop that low i was like i was telling <laughs> i've literally texted my wife's like bye 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 <laughs> hey i'll tell you right now you know that would have been the place to buy because i think it closed at about a hundred dollars a share on friday yeah when i have i have it on my stock watch um but but anyway um you know chapek has been under a lot of fire because of the way the business has been viewed and uh, the rise and fall of the stocks is uh, is a result of some questionable 
stuff, I think, or the way the business is being viewed by outsiders or, or potential investors. So what do you think about all this stuff? With, with you know, look, this always happens when, when, when there's a, you know, a, an earnings miss and, and, you know, Disney missed on the top and bottom lines. Uh, they, they, uh, the only bright spot really was the uh, theme parks. Uh, and, uh, look, you know, it, it, it's the nature of the business cycle right now, because a lot of companies are struggling and a lot of companies have missed, uh, on their earnings. Uh, so, you know, he's, he's had a lot of missteps, I, I have to say, and, and they just keep piling up and, you know, uh, this is oftentimes, you know, where there's, there's smoke, there's fire, you know, and when you start to get a drumbeat of it's time for him to go at some point, there may be traction on that. In the large scheme of things, Dave, you, you said that a lot of businesses are not hitting and uh, during this time. And I think you're right. I mean, there's a lot of that, which is kind of a kind of a back to trying to get back to normal uh, levels of pre COVID, if you will. And some of that is a result of that, but, um, and we'll just have to see, but this can't be good either, Dave, because the next story from CNBC, Disney plans hiring freezes, layoffs, and cost cuts, according to a memo from CEO Bob Chapek. This also had that same timing, if you will, uh, right after that, uh, that recent low on the stock market. So yeah. it says uh, Disney plans to freeze, hire, and cut jobs according to an internal memo that was leaked. And then the move comes to uh, the reported quarterly results. So uh, what say you about all this? You know, it, it's really unfortunate, and it seems to be a pattern with this company. But they, they lay people off before the holidays, or they give people reason to worry through the holidays that they're going to be laid off. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I will tell you right now, though, that the company can probably trim 10% of the workforce. Uh, and I'm not talking about uh, the theme parks. The theme parks are kind of its own thing. You know, you need to have people there to uh, make sure that the guests are having the experience they expect. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, but I'm talking about uh, in the corporate side, uh, you know, the studios, the uh, corporate, uh, the various divisions, consumer products and stuff like that. I think they're ripe for, for cutting 10% of the workforce because there is a lot of redundancy. There's a lot of overlap. There is a lot of convoluted uh, processes. You know, you got to realize the Walt Disney Company has, I think, over 200,000 employees at this point. It's like a bureaucracy. You know what I mean? Yes. And, and and there's convoluted processes that that are going on. There's also a lot of interesting legacy businesses that really should be all scooped into one sort of legacy division, if you will, because I don't think that they're optimizing some of the assets that they have as much as they could be. Uh, and, uh, so, you know, to me, I think this is a good thing. I think they need to do a top to bottom review of the entire company. Um, I think there there's divisions that, that are so bloated and have such convoluted processes that it, it, it's a waste of money. Uh, and by, by doing this, uh, and they need, this is a company that needs to do this periodically. Um, they have to, uh, and, uh, I think, Ultimately, this is a good thing. I always think it sucks, though, that it happens, that these announcements happen going into the holiday season. 
couple questions. You know? Couple questions, Dave. When when yeah. does the fiscal year start for Disney? Uh, is let's it see. part of the calendar it's, year? Or does it? Is no, it it's not a calendar year. Their fiscal year is, uh, begins October first. Ah, uh, okay. So gotcha. Yeah. Okay, that's why. So you know, to me. You know, because your fiscal year begins October first. You know, uh, why why make this announcement now? Go, you know, we're 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 a week and a half, two weeks before Thanksgiving. You know, why why not just wait until January and then make that announcement? You mm-hmm. know, and and, and it, it just you know it it it's it, it it's being a decent human being to do it that way. I yeah. think. It says uh, in the article, Disney's also establishing a cost structure task force. I think that's what you're alluding to, made up of the CFO, Kristen, um, Christine McCarthy, and General Counsel Horatio Gutierrez and Bob Chapek. And he says, quote, Chapek says, quote, I'm fully aware that this will be a difficult process for many of you and your teams. We're going to have to make tough and uncomfortable decisions, but that's just what leadership requires. Thank you in advance for stepping up during this important time. Yeah, you know, look, this is this is uh, you know uh, one of those things that companies have to do, uh, and and there are people that'll be affected by this in a negative way, and it's unfortunate, uh, but it is the way of the world. Yeah, speaking of the way of the world, um, Grey's Anatomy star Ellen Pompeo is leaving. Gray Sloan Hospital for Boston. So she's getting ready to hang up her doctor scrubs and move on to somewhere else. So she's being written out uh, after getting her D23 legend, um, you know, legends uh, kind of ceremony happening. Yeah. Now here she is. It looks like she's been signed on to star and exec to produce an untitled series for Disney owned Hulu, but she's been on the show since its inception. And this is the 19th season which is crazy. What and, an amazing career for an actor to have a show that runs for nearly two decades. And she stayed with it all that time. Right. Well, if this, if her show fizzles a little bit, it's always written that she can come back. So, um, you know, they are getting, you know, Disney is trying to, or ABC is trying to make sure they stay in the gap by having some other actors return in her st- in her stead, uh, to kind of keep ratings up. But uh, once again, you know, Ellen Pompeo, yeah. and what a great run. I, I think it's fantastic. Well, speaking of a run ending, HBO cancels Westworld in a shock decision. The acclaimed sci-fi drama is considered finished after its recent fourth se- season, despite creators hoping for a fifth season. This is according to The Hollywood Reporter. Dave, you say it's uh, money related? Yeah, perhaps? you know, that, that this is the, these are all money decisions. Uh, you know, uh, you've got uh, Warner Discovery, uh, you know, they, they just merged and uh, there is a, a massive cost cutting going on because they have a huge amount of debt uh, and they have to rein in the spending. And so some of these shows that they're spending a tremendous amount, you know, look, I, I think I talked about this last year. Um, I watched Snowpiercer, which I really enjoyed. I thought it was a really terrific series. But they were spending $7 million an episode for Snowpiercer. $7 million an episode. That's wild. You you can't keep that kind of stuff up, uh, uh, you know, on a scale of a Warner Brothers, you know, where they're doing multiple types of shows like that. Westworld is another one where it was they were spending a lot of money per episode. And I think that this was really a financial thing. 
Yeah. Well, I hope they give it a great send off. I know there's a lot of fans out there for the show. Well, you know something? I think with a lot of shows, you have to, I, I think the creators have to do every, you know, um, every season as if it's the last season. Sure. You know, I think you're because right. that, that's just being respectful to the fans. You don't want to leave people hanging. Yeah. Right. Right. You know, right. <laughs> well, in some regrets this week when we have a few, um, one of the most prolific voice actors um, to voice an iconic character, Batman, Kevin Conroy from Batman, the animated series, the voice of Batman for nearly, what was it? Uh, 660 like, different productions. He passed it was away. Like thir- it was like 30 years, right? Oh God. Yes. Yeah, something like that for 30 it years. It was like right. close to 30 years. Um, he had passed away this week. Uh, fought really hard against his battle with cancer. He was 66. So young. But uh, yeah. Kevin Conroy, I can't tell you, when you listen to Batman, yes, you you have Michael Keaton's Batman. You've got Adam West as far as legendary Batman figures over the years. But Kevin Conroy has played a part of my childhood and millions of others. And um, it's very sad. It's very sad. And uh, Mark Hamill, who played Conroy's on-screen foil the joker mourned in a recent tweet he said kevin was perfection he said he was one of my favorite people on the planet and i loved him like a brother he truly cared for people around him his decency shown through everything he did every time i saw or spoke with him my spirits were elevated and uh, all i gotta say is rest in peace kevin conroy man all of the fans for batman and dc uh mourn your loss and and what a body of work he leaves behind absolutely i mean he has got the gravitas the voice of batman and bruce wayne there will never be another one like him no uh speaking of uh legendary leslie phillips debonair british actor of carry on doctor in harry potter films dies at 98 and talk Boy, what about a life. Huh? I was going to say what a life and what a body of work Dave 170 roles across the big and small screen prolific is uh is an understatement. Yeah, and uh he's absolutely somebody who when you see his picture you go, "Oh, I've seen him in you know, a million things." Uh-huh. You know, he he was just a great British character actor. Absolutely. A lot of people will know him from his work out of Africa, which is uh, where a lot of people kind of remember him. Steven Spielberg's Empire of the Sun. So he's been on so many different things. And of course, he was the hat in the installments of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone and the Chamber of Secrets and Deathly Hallows. So go figure. Um, he, He is so well known in this industry. So rest in peace, Leslie. Phillips. Man, 98 though. 98. We should all be so lucky. No what, a, what a great life and a great career. Absolutely. Speaking of legendary careers, Gallagher, the comic for smashing watermelons and someone that I have seen uh, growing up in his stage act dies at the age of 76. He broke out in the eighties with an a uncensored evening and passed away in Palm Springs after a short health battle. So, uh, Dave, I know, you know, Gallagher, uh, his work very well. I mean, uh, you know, I've seen him in Nashville. He's one of my favorite comedians growing up and, uh, it's just, uh, just one of those comics that really is, um, I guess ingrained in people's memory in that, that particular pop culture time. Yeah. And, and you know something, he was a very, very bright guy. You know, he, he had a degree in chemical engineering. Wow. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I have to say, uh, he, he had his shtick, he had a show and, uh, and, and, you know, he weaved in, uh, you know, jokes about contemporary topics. Uh, and, and I always thought it was funny that, uh, uh, people that went to see his show, the ones that would sit down in the front front rows, you know, wore, you know, old clothes and, and brought, you know, rain ponchos with them because they were going to be splattered with all kinds of food that he would be smashing with his homemade, uh, uh, Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) exactly. It it was, I, I watched a couple of clips this week, um, uh, of him on stage. Uh, and you know, again, when news broke that he passed away, I just thought it was, uh, it was terrific to, to see some of that stuff. One of my very first, um, remembrances dave of going to a comedy show with my parents believe it or not with my parents um was at the tennessee performing arts center to see gallagher back in Mm. 1983 84 maybe i was just a kid but i we were we were sitting in the upper tier so we didn't have to have the big tarp uh covering us because they always brought those plastic sheets out there to protect the front rows of the audience but i thought he was hilarious and he was in so many different um I guess variety shows, if you will, and, and nighttime shows. He was just a fixture, and, and he will be missed. Yeah, yeah. Also, speaking of comics, Bud Friedman, the founder of the Improv, dies at ninety. He was a club pioneer, boosted the careers of Jay Leno, Richard Pryor, Bette Midler, Andy Kaufman, and so many others. Is there any more iconic comedy venues out there like the Improv? I mean, there's a handful of them, but that is has you know, to be at the top I mean, of the really list. It's, it, the Improv is, is, is the one that started it all, you know, and uh, it, it's absolutely, you know, the original. Uh, and then you have the Comedy Store uh, out here in Los Angeles. That's right. Uh, you know, uh, but I have to say, anybody who is anyone in uh, comedy has played at the uh, uh, at the improv. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld, uh, Robin uh, Williams, Wayans. Uh, you know, yeah. You just go down the list. David, uh, uh, what was it? David, David Brenner. Yeah, David, David Brenner, Brenner Chris me, David Rock, Brenner. Robin it Williams, go- of course. Yeah, yeah. It just goes on and on the list, and uh, he really. You know, he discovered a lot of people. I mean, when you when you when I read one of the obituaries, you know, it talked about Joe Piscopo was a doorman at the Improv in New York, and you know, uh, uh, Elaine Boozler was yes. you know working uh, you know as a waitress, and yep. uh, believe it or not, Les Moonves was a bartender at the <laughs> Improv in Los Angeles. Yeah, the former you president know, Les, of uh, CBS the, the, of CBS. I mean, yeah. you know, you you just go. It, it they were rattling off names of people that actually worked uh at, at the improv and it was just absolutely amazing and there was a terrific story um uh with Jay Leno Jay Leno yeah. was living in Boston and he was driving down to New York uh to try and get on uh you know uh open mic night yes. you know 
and and he would drive it and it's a four hour it's about a four hour drive from boston to new york he would That's drive right. down and he he'd be in the club and he'd try and get on he wouldn't get on and he'd turn around and he'd drive four hours back to boston and he did that for several days in a row and finally he said to uh to bud friedman you know is there any chance i can get on i've been coming down from boston for the last three days and bud friedman looked at him he goes you've been driving down from boston and back every day and he says yeah he goes you're going on next oh. Oh, you know, so. yeah, that's awesome. But that's I mean, what we call. And, yeah, go ahead. I, I'm sorry. I was going to say, Bud Friedman was Jay Leno's first uh, manager. Uh, and also uh, Bud Friedman was the first manager for Bette Midler. Yes. And, you know, and, and Bette spent a lot of time there crafting. I, I, from my understanding, she honed in on her craft with Barry Manilow. And, well, Barry Manilow was the house piano, the house player, piano player for, uh, early in his career. That's right. So, I mean, when when you go down that list of of who was you know discovered or or worked at the improv, it, it's ridiculous. It's 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 a who's who. Well, being a New Yorker, Dave, did you ever go see shows at the improv? I never did. Wow, I never did. But you know why? Because I mean, partly because I'm not really a night owl. I'm not uh, a. Uh, I, I'm and I was not never really a clubbing person. Yeah, you know what I mean, yeah. So no, I get it. I get it. But that, I mean, that's what you call cutting your teeth. And it's yeah. always great when you have somebody like Bud, who discovers talent and gives them a platform so they can be discovered by others. And, you know, that's what happened to me in my band. I'm so grateful for stuff like that. When those breaks happen to play on big yeah. stages. So, you know, God bless bud for giving those people the opportunity. And, 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 you know, what a great life, 90 years old. Um, you know, he, he leaves behind a number of children and grandchildren. Uh, and you know, really you could look at this guy and say, truly, he was the king of comedy. He was the guy that discovered so many people. I mean, Adam Sandler just went oh, on and on all, yeah. of, all of the people that got their start there. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Well, rest, so in, rest peace. in peace, rest in peace. Yeah. Now we're, let's go ahead and, uh, Rock on with week number two of Andreas Deja month right here on Skull Rock Podcast. Let's do it. All right, Al John, we've got Andreas Deja, the great animator, uh, the Disney legend, uh, back with us uh, for part two of our conversation about his career. And last week, Andreas, we uh, we left off uh, with Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and uh, and one thing I wanted to mention. Uh, and this is really sort of a little side note. I, I mean, I had so much fun being over in London working on uh, uh, on that film. Uh, but one of the things that I really remember is not really related to the film. It's going to um, I think it was Joe Allen's restaurant in the West End of London for Thanksgiving of 1987. Uh, you were with us. And Max Howard, who ran the studio, uh, took the five or six Americans. Don Hahn was there and, and Phil and uh, Phil Niblink and um, uh, a few other guys. And we went to a, a full on American Thanksgiving dinner. And then do you remember what they took, uh, what Max took us to see afterwards? Dame Edna. Oh my gosh! I'd forgotten about that to be honest with you, <laughs> but it, but it's all coming back now. 
that yes. was such a fun evening. Uh, yeah. Damon, uh, the the uh, Barry Humphreys is a great uh, Australian comedian and does this character, Dame Edna. And, I, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners know who Dame Edna is. And if you don't look Dame Edna up on YouTube or something and you'll 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 laugh your tail off. Uh, but but that was really one one of the big memories I have from uh, from being over in London was was that uh, you know camaraderie with with yeah. that small group around really an American holiday. Yeah, it was awfully nice of them to uh, take us to uh, an American Thanksgiving dinner. You know the usual turkey and gravy and uh, and all of that. It was awfully nice. And and then yeah, that was the bonus. And uh, well, I've been a fan ever since <laughs> same uh, here damn it nice just just hits my funny bone a hundred percent uh the satire and the slight nastiness but in a friendly way yes. how she insults the audience it's priceless it's priceless so since then i've seen damn edna in florida when i was on Lilo and stitch i've seen her here in LA a few times. So I'm a super fan. Yes, absolutely. Now we, we, we finish up who framed Roger Rabbit. And really, I think when, when any of us look back at that time period, it, it's really, um, uh, who framed Roger Rabbit, uh, an American tale, which Don Bluth did with Steven Spielberg and the little mermaid, the, those three pictures, really are sort of the beginning of the animation renaissance, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Uh, because people started to connect with those films that you, that you just mentioned. And uh, even to the point where um, we got teenagers back to come into the theaters because we, we had lost those long ago. It was the uncoolest thing to for for a teenager to take his girlfriend to a Disney movie. That just didn't happen. Right. Because we were not considered cool. But it, it was starting to. I remember this was after Mermaid had come out. Uh, I was um, I was involved in uh, building a home, and my co the contractor's son, uh, who was a teenager, uh, he had heard that I worked for Disney, so we had this conversation on the on the site, you know, where, where his dad was working, and uh, he said, "So you work for Disney?" And uh, I said, uh, "Did you work on the Little Mermaid?" And I said, "Yeah." I, Drew her father. He said, "You work on the Little Mermaid." He said, "That is that is a great date film." He said, "I took my girlfriend and we snuggled up and we just <laughs> loved it, you know." And that that day it dawned on me: they're back. The teenagers yes. are back. Yeah, that <clears throat> that was that really was the beginning of it. Now, when you came back, um, I I know you were, you were the supervising animator, directing animator, character designer. You did King Triton, and you also did Vanessa. Uh -huh. uh, on The Little Mermaid. But I also noticed when I was looking over all of your credits, you did some character design for Oliver and Company. I did, yeah. That happened actually just before Roger Rabbit even, just before. Yeah. And uh, I did that for, for a few months because I had some time left before I would this uh, London uh, trip would uh, start uh, to happen. And I helped out on Oliver and Company. And I I, also, I even animated uh, five or six scenes uh, where uh, at the beginning of the movie, the Oliver, the cat is being chased by dogs. So I did a whole bunch of scenes in that in that area, but uh, did like various story treatments. There was, a, there was a zoo involved where these characters were supposed to uh, uh, rescue a panda bear 
from a zoo. I mean, it was it was a yeah. whole different story, but all still uh, within the, the theme of all around company. So I remember doing a whole bunch of character designs then and enjoying that. I, I, I enjoy that process almost as much as animation because you really start from scratch. You just have a white piece of paper. There is no character yet. And then you, you do your research, you know, whether it's costume, the history of costumes or whether it's certain animals that you get back, back into. It's just a really fun process. I really enjoy it. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but but obviously you did a little bit of that and you did some animation, but you took off. You did Who Framed Roger Rabbit. When you came back, you came back specifically, obviously, to work on The Little Mermaid. Yeah, um, exactly. There was uh, there was an, another offer uh, because uh, I mean, I had to go back to Disney because I had signed a contract. Sure. <laughs> These were the days when Jeffrey Katzenberg had actually animators on, under contract. Yeah. So I had signed one that I would come back and uh, work in Bur Burbank again. And uh, so, um, but R Richard Williams, after Roger Rabbit, uh, started to pay attention again to his personal feature, The Thief and the Cobbler. And he said, well, uh, one, once your contract is up, uh, I have a spot for you here also in London to help me finishing that movie. Let me show you where we are. And uh, <clears throat> he showed me some some real, some, some color stuff, some stuff in pencil test. And it was fascinating, to say the yeah. least. It, it looked glorious, you know, like uh, the stylization of it alone. It was just beautiful. So I and I had gotten on with Dick Williams really well. We actually became friends. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe that's my next step. Maybe I should uh, fulfill my contract at Disney and then go back to London. To help him with this movie, and oh, I was a little torn, going back sure. and forth uh, in my in my head. And then, uh, but once I, I I saw how the Little Mermaid was coming along, and it was coming along really well story wise, I thought maybe I should stay because that's the kind of thing that I'm familiar with. Uh, while Dick was great with dazzling visually, you know, with all kinds of uh, things, whether it's effects or the stylization of the backgrounds and the characters, but Disney again is on the acting and the personality. And yeah. I thought, and I saw that coming together in the little mermaid. So, so I basically stayed on. And, and, and there was also something about the little mermaid early on in the development of it. There, there was an enthusiasm about that movie that it, there was a, there was something fresh happening. Don't you think? Absolutely. Uh, and, uh, we had a, if, if you recall this, we had a what 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 I call a first time screening with no animation in it. It's just the animatic, uh, the or, or the story reels, yeah, the temporary voices, the temporary tracks of the of the songs, and uh, you have these screenings, and most of the times they don't work because it's the first time, you know, sure. and uh, everybody goes into it thinking like, well, this is the first time that they're going to show this. They're going to be there's going to be a lot of changes story-wise some sequences are going to be thrown out and that's just how these things go but not on the little mermaid right it kind of worked the first time around and that's what got everybody's enthusiasm level up so high because we were so looking forward to doing this animating this because it was working so well i mean i remember bernie mattens and uh was still at the studio uh story guy but he uh he, i think his first movie was it was either Cinderella or Peter Pan as an assistant. So he had been around the studio and seen a lot of first-time screenings. Yeah. 
And he said the Little Mermaid was the best one, <laughs> you know, yeah. in, to, in uh, uh, of an early screening. Of an early yeah. screening, the way things had come together so early on. Yeah. And so we were just so passionate about it from the get go. Yeah, those first screenings, normally you're kind of going into them thinking in terms of degrees of badness. You know, is this going to be really bad or is it just going to be bad? <laughs> right. To give you an example, what happened later on uh, Aladdin, it did not go so well right. for that first screening. Actually, Jeffrey Katzenberg came in and he saw the first screening and he got up and he said, you can keep the title. And that was the end of that was the end of the meeting. Basically, start over, and that was not uncommon. Yeah, so again, yeah, on the so, mermaid, things started to come together so soon. It was it was very tough, very tough early on on a lot of those movies. Um, mm -hmm. What what do you remember about uh, Little Mermaid as far as your animation goes? Doing King Triton. Yeah, uh, actually, originally I was assigned to Prince Eric. Uh, again, coming from Roger, Roger Rabbit, uh, most of the the characters had been cast. Uh, Ruben Aquino was going to do King Triton. Glenn was always going to do Ariel, and so forth. So uh, they just they basically Prince Eric for me. And I thought, well, I wasn't overly excited about that. The, the idea of just animating, being the supervising animator for that character. But of course, I was going to do my my best because sure. that, that's uh, what you do. And uh, was starting to do some character design and all, all, all that with the character. And then all of a sudden I get, I get this call and they said, um, you know what, we have a little bit of recasting here happening. Ruben Aquino is not going to do King Triton. He's at, he's actually going to do Ursula. So King Triton is, avail is available now. Would you rather do that character? And I said, yes, please. Because um, uh, I, I like the idea of, or, or, or the personality of King Triton because he was, yes, he was the ruler of the ocean and he is a very had a lot of authority and all of that. But but he was basically a father. Right. You, know, you looked at him as a father who had had, had feelings for his daughter, of course, uh, uh, who who gets in trouble, and so there was there's that relationship, and that really appealed to me. So I was thrilled to take the, that character over, and uh, uh, was very happy with the. Uh, the voice it was actor ken mars who had been in some mel brooks movies yeah. like young frankenstein and a few others and uh, so he did a fantastic and, voice and, performance and king king triton has more depth he's a more rounded character you had more to work with if you look at uh prince eric he's really kind of a flat character i mean he's kind of two-dimensional almost Really, yeah. you know, he's 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 better though than some of the old Disney princes who were yes. really there, there as a as a as a placeholder almost. There there was very little act acting involved in those scenes, so he has a bit more of that. Even a little argument with with Ariel and all of that. But yeah, I mean, when you talk about King Triton, he gets upset and uh, he he raises his voice, you know, and then he he regrets it and he comes down. So there are mood swings, yeah. you know, and things you can really animate and get your teeth into. Yeah, yeah, I I I think that uh, the success of that movie uh, really uh, was a was a, a jolt of uh, goodness to the animation department at that point. Uh, you know, especially coming off of Black Cauldron and then having the management change out, it really felt you know even though you had 
uh, great mouse detective and who framed Roger Rabbit and Oliver and company in there. I think really the big box office break with the little mermaid uh, really uh, made people sit up and take notice. Yeah, I think at that time you couldn't talk to a person who didn't like the movie. Right. Everybody loved The Little Mermaid. It was an overwhelming success. And I remember um, Angel Lansbury, who worked on Beauty and the Beast, not The Little Mermaid. But she recalled this in some meeting or some lecture. She says, well, when we, meaning show business people, people of her caliber, when when she said, when we saw The Little Mermaid, we were all thinking, this is how we would have done this, Broadway style, yeah. in a grand manner with storytelling songs, you know. So a huge compliment from somebody like Angela Lansbury. Oh, yeah. Who loved The Little Mermaid. I mean, come on. Who knew? <laughs> yeah, who knew? Exactly. exactly. So so from The Little Mermaid, uh, you went on to do uh, Mickey, and, uh, uh, Mickey Mouse and, and The Prince in Prince and the Pauper. Uh, and right. that, that I, I, I have to say must have been a nice refreshing break from doing Triton, who was more of a human character. Yeah. You just go back to doing cartoony characters. Uh, uh, this was Mickey Mouse, who of course the world knows Mickey, Mickey Mouse and, uh, uh, knows what he looks like and who he is. And, and this was a chance for me. I'd done a few scenes with Mickey and who friend Roger Rabbit. The bulk of the Mickey scenes were done by Dale Bear. Yes. He did a beautiful job. I, I had done some, but with The Prince and the Pauper, you know, Mickey was the lead character, and you better get him right or try your best, I thought. So in, in preparation for the animation of Mickey in a dual role, because he had two personalities, there was the real Mickey, and then there was the pr Prince who was a little cocky and uh, had a whole different personality than the Mickey who we know. Uh, so what, what I would do, I would go to the Animation Research Library, which is a huge archive that has kept all the Disney drawings ever made, animation drawings, layout drawings. They still have a lot of the background art and all that. So you, we were able to go in there and, and study old Mickey Mouse scenes. You know, which are your, your favorite scenes? Well, uh, Brave Little Taylor is fantastic and Mickey's birthday party and the pointer where he's going hunting for a bear with uh, Pluto, those old classics, like around 1938, 1941, 42, th th there was just a, v a version of Mickey Mouse at that time that is so appealing to everybody, not just myself, but to the whole crew from the Prince of the Popper, that we we all agreed, let's tune into that version of Mickey Mouse, study it, and then try to bring that to the screen yeah. on this screen. Yeah. And and that was a that was a featurette. That was only what like twenty something, twenty two minutes, twenty five minutes. Yeah, uh, something like that. Twenty five. Something like probably. that. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and a beautifully done. It, it, I mean, it really does have the feel of those early nineteen uh, thirties uh, Mickey Mouse cartoons. You know, Brave Little yeah, Taylor because, and those, those yeah. kinds. You know, because we 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 did our homework, and the the background people tried to do this watercolor style uh, for the film because. Uh, that had that beautiful vintage look. Yeah. And we, we actually purposely wanted to do a movie that hooks up with those old classic shorts. Yeah. And uh, in terms of handling Mickey Mouse, I uh, it, it's intimidating. You know, again, like, as I said, the world knows Mickey Mouse, so you don't want to screw up your 
assignment. And uh, but studying Frank Thomas's drawing of the brave little tailor really helped. How he articulated hands, you know, with one thumb and three fingers, and how that works, and how the feet react to a solid ground. They kind of flatten on the bottom to give you that squishy, squashy feel. And so you study all that and then you apply it. But uh, but I did one scene early on where I thought, oh, I think I I think I have a feeling for this character now. And it was where M Mickey had just entered the castle and he was he's kind of astonished at what he sees, his grand palace, and he takes his hat off. And then he looks, there's a shiny surface that he uh, sees his reflection in. And he starts to do a little dance and he hums this little uh, song, like, I'm just a little guy. Na, 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 na. And he does this little dance, which sort of backwards, and uh, he actually bounces into some armor uh, and the armor uh, all falls down, uh -huh. causes a commotion. Then the prince comes around the corner and they both meet. But that little dance, I, I, I applied some subtleties and there were there, there would have been a, a thousand ways you could have done this broad you know because it's a cartoon character but I thought no I'm going to deal with subtleties here and I'm going to think of him as being a real character with with his own weight the way the shoulders would work to the body and and just just do that as if it's a real person not a cartoon yeah. character so that was my my approach to Mickey and that scene worked I think it's still one of my best scenes and. Uh, uh, that was sort of my gateway into the character. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm curious to to get your perspective on uh, why there's never been a Mickey Mouse feature film. Do you just, you know, do you have any thoughts on that? Because, you know, mostly we've seen Mickey in like Prince and the Pauper, which is a featurette or, uh, you know, a Christmas Carol. Um, uh, but you know, a full on, you know, 85, 87 minute, uh, animated feature film. Well, even Walt and, and his crew tried it with, uh, Mickey and the Beanstalk. Yeah. That was going to be, and that's a featurette, but they started that out as a planning as a, as a, as a whole feature. And the story people were not complaining what they were discovering that, for a feature-length film, you need a certain level of depth within the characters that they thought uh, these cartoon characters, it's just very hard to get to that level of yeah. depth in the acting and in the situation, whether it's sadness or tragedy. I mean, the, you, you always get the get the humor with these cartoon characters, but there's, there's oft, often, you know, in feature films, also sadness and or frustration you know, feelings that you don't necessarily associate with a cartoony character. So they were frustrated a little bit that they couldn't get that story-wise. And, 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 and sort of the arc of the character changing throughout a feature, yeah, right? Yeah, that too. You know, that yeah. because, because the public is so familiar uh, with these characters, uh, they're, they're more sidekicky, uh, uh, comic relief as opposed to what you were just saying that the depth mm -hmm. of a of a character yeah so that is the reason why they turned uh, Mickey and the Beanstalk into a featurette and uh, that's why we also chose that format for the for the Prince and the Pauper um, they did finally create a, a feature with with a Disney crew that worked in Australia in Sydney yeah uh, called the Three Musketeers. And I think it, it works fairly well. It's a really fun picture. 
nicely animated. There were very talented people down there. Uh, but it, it feels like it is stretching it a little bit in terms of, like you said, character arcs and emotions. Yeah. So I think I think there's a reason why I think a feature red or a short film format tends to work a little bit better. Yeah, yeah. Um, so from Prince and the Pauper, you go on to Beauty and the Beast. And, and by the way, I am going to say to our audience, I'm not going to race through and say, oh, and then you worked on Aladdin and you worked on this and that and then and we're ending our conversation because I kind of feel like we're going to get back together for a part three. If, if you're good with that, Andreas, <laughs> we're not going to we're not going to do it today, sure. but but I think we got we have to. Because well, 30 years, 30 years, you know. It's a lot to cover. It, yeah, you know, it really it, is. So I think what we'll do is we'll, we'll, we're going to talk about uh, a few more of the, the feature films and then maybe around Lion King or so we'll take a or runaway brain. We'll take a, uh, we'll end this conversation and we'll, and we'll, we'll have you back for part three. All right. How's that sound? Uh, so sure, absolutely. Yeah. After Prince of the Pauper, uh, you, you went on to do Gaston in uh beauty and the beast and and i have to tell you gaston is really one of my favorite villains uh in, in the disney canon because uh he's just so full of himself and and you, i honestly when i watch beauty and the beast and i i, I and you know I, i'm probably like most of the people who have worked on these films we've seen it hundreds of times uh, I still laugh at certain scenes, you know, uh, of Gaston because he's just, you know, this person you love to hate because he's so in so full of himself. Uh, how, how did you develop that character? Well, it didn't happen overnight for sure. Uh, that one was a tough one to uh, get into and uh, get right. Uh, I... Uh, initially had asked to do the character of Belle. I thought maybe at this at this stage in my career, I should do a, a female female character protagonist. Uh, and, um, and then the more we got involved in the story and all that, they said, well, they said, we do like the way you drew uh, King Triton that about the anatomy, you know, his, his hands and arms. And that would uh, actually also uh, apply for Gaston because he's sort of a bodybuilder type guy. And uh, there's, there's going to be some drawing challenges, which I think you can handle, I was told. So they put me on that character. And uh, um, I look at the storyboards and they were fun, you know, all these Gaston moments, the, the, the drinking song in the tavern. And uh, I saw this as this gruff, outdoorsy kind of a guy. And of course, he was, he was going to be the villain. So I designed him that way, very broad, with a huge jaw and a mustache, you know, and uh, overemphasized anatomy, and uh, I I did a scene uh, in the first sequence where we see him at the beginning of the film uh, with all the townspeople, and then we focus on Gaston, and he sees his reflection in some of the the uh, plates or pots that are hanging yeah. on one stand outside, and he kind of pays pays attention to himself as he's singing along. That was my first scene. And I remember showing that, and it was Jeffrey Katzenberg and the directors, and it was Jeffrey who said, well, he said, the animation is fine, but of course he has to be handsome. He's not handsome enough. And I was, I said, handsome? He's the villain. Why, why, why would he be, have to be handsome? And he 
didn't explain very much. This is Katzenberg again. He didn't say very much. He says, well, he just has to be, you know, just that's the, the, the way the story goes. And I was frustrated and I thought, well, if he's a prince type looking character, how will I get the emotion out of him? Because I, I won't have a range because I would have to apply so much more realism to make him look handsome. So I got, I got frustrated and he knew that I was frustrated. So about a week after he called me into his office, which was on the, on the main lot yeah. in the old animation building. And uh, he said, I know you've been messing with this, the, the concept of Gaston. And he really explained it to me very eloquently. He said, look, the story that we're trying to tell here within Beauty and the Beast is really, the theme is really don't judge the book by its cover. Meaning when the audience meets the beast, we he's very frightening looking and scary. And uh, but we find out throughout the story that he really is a good guy and he has a heart of gold. He just looks scary. And Gaston has has to have the opposite qualities. We see him for the first time. He looks like a really handsome dude. Maybe he's somebody who should marry Belle. And uh, yet we find out as soon as he acts that he is full of himself. You know, he's just in love with himself, really. And, uh, uh, you know, we find out throughout the story that that he's, he's a male chauvinist and all that, and even a murderer in the end. So these are opposite qualities, a handsome character being really bad. Uh, and uh, my response was, okay, I get, I get the idea now, but I just have to say that uh, it's, it's going to be tough to, to animate a character like that, being handsome. And Jeffrey just said, well, nobody said it was going to be easy. <laughs> and that was the end of the meeting. <laughs> that was it. So you deal with it. <laughs> now, now did, did your character design change that much then from that first scene uh, to what the what the public now knows it, as Gaston? Yeah. Yeah, it did. I kind of, for lack of a better word, beautified him a little bit, made his facial proportions a little bit more subtle. But to be honest with you, I snuck in some of that old squash and stretch and extreme positions, especially when there's the strong, arrogant attitude. You know, his yeah. chest, you pull the chest out just a little bit more than a, a real human would do. Yeah. Uh, you know, and when he's talking about, uh, you know, uh, about his diet, he's like 12 dozen eggs. And you just go a little further and a little broader in, in your drawing than you would normally do. And I uh, thought I was hoping nobody would call me on that, especially Jeffrey. And he didn't, you know, because uh, he thought that it was still, it was still within the concept of being a handsome character, being bad. So, yeah. Um, yeah. You, you, it was, you liked him, but you knew he was a bad person, but you liked him. Yeah, that was, you that know? was and, the idea. And, and, and by the was... way, in that song that you were just referencing, that's where he pulls open his his shirt and his chest hairs pop out. And and that even today, even thinking about the scene, I always laugh when I see that because it's just such a beautiful button, if you will, uh, within that it, song, you know? It's unexpected. It's unexpected. It's unexpected. <laughs> But it follows the lyrics because the, the lyrics were, and every last inch of me is covered with hair. And yeah. on hair, the storyboard showed, you know, he's opening up to show off his, his uh, chest hair. Yeah. And uh, I didn't animate that. Another animator animated it, and uh, I gave him some hints on timing and all of that. And uh, 
the overall animation was fine, but then what he exposed, especially in the, in the first pencil test version, was a little bit disturbing for, to me <laughs> and maybe some others because the hair was drawn as if, it, I mean, the, the chest hair was drawn long and combed from the inside out, like combed outward, you know, from, from the middle to the side. Off, off and, of the uh, sternum, off of the sternum, right? I mean, like, yeah, almost like yes. the part of, uh, like the hair being parted. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And it just looked strange to me. I thought, God, I never would have thought it would look like that. And uh, when we went out of dating, I, I remember there was one one lady saying, well, well, that looked sexy. I said, I'm not so sure about that. There's something, I, I think we should try different versions of chest hair and see what we come up with. And then I talked with my animators about it, my, my crew. I said, how would you draw it? I mean, the other guys. And then we had, I Xerox that one drawing with his uh, uh, shirt, you know, parted. And then everybody had their idea of chest hair, curly, just stubbles, uh, you know, long, short. We had like 10 different versions. And uh, I thought, well, I think it should be a mix of like stubby little things and then slight curls. And um, then the effects guys knew about our problem or heard about our problem and said, let, let us do this. We're going <laughs> to take the animation, the character animation. There's a slight turn as he opens his shirt, we're gonna put the chest hair on there. So they did that, but when I saw it coming back, the way it looked like it was, it was not turning in perspective correctly. Right. They didn't quite go with the, with the turn of the chest. It was, it kind of shifted around a little bit. So I, I took what they had done and repositioned that a little bit and then that's the final version. But yeah. it was definitely one of those scenes that you get stuck on, you know. It's and, just, and, it, and it needed a little massaging. It did. It did. Yeah. yeah. In the end, there were lots of people who had their hands in this and, and got it to a point where it was. The main thing is it gets a big laugh each time. And that's all you want. Yeah, exactly. It's very entertaining. Um, uh, of the entire film, what was the most difficult scene that you had to animate uh, on Gaston? Mm, or, you know when was, i say most difficult even like the one you struggled with to the most you know yeah i think those 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 early scenes because i wasn't sure how cartoony uh, i uh or how realistic i i would have to be if i, I thought if i draw too cartoony jeff jeffrey won't like it if i do it too straight and realistic it's going to look stiff so finding that fine line you know uh, between those two, realism and cartoony, that was sort of over. Over for each, with each scene, I asked myself, "How far can I go with this?" And then you just trust your gut instinct. And other people did some fantastic work on him too. Uh, that uh, Tim Allen uh, did that a very broad scene during his songs. He did that thing with the eggs, you know, and uh -huh. he went super broad on that, and it really applied, and nobody questioned it, uh, you know. So I think it, it was just the overall. Uh, concept for each or the, the the idea how far can you go, how far is too far, you know. Right. But I couldn't single out a specific scene. Um, I what I loved a lot was doing the se sequence where he just bursts into Belle's house and just announces that he's <laughs> going to marry her. It's not yes. even asking her; it just <laughs> announces that's what's going to happen, and they're going to have all these kids and 
that that's that's how it is. It was so. I mean, how can anybody be so idiotic, you know, and full so of ar- arrogance and yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. But it was, it was very entertaining, yeah. very very entertaining. And, and listen for for our listeners, you were the supervising animator for Gaston, so you actually had a unit of animators. How, how many other animators were working with you on Gaston? Because you you were such a about, su- you were supervising them. Yeah, yeah. I I think I had about five. Okay. Five people and uh, the way that works is you are as a supervising animator, you are responsible for your own footage, and management expects you to do about eight to ten feet a week, which is quite a bit. But then on top of that, I need to make sure that everybody else draws the character the same and and also un- understands their scenes in terms of acting and emotions so in the end it feels like one hand created this this character and sure. not that there are se- several versions of Gaston I didn't want that to happen so uh that led me to do what what I call drawovers because I I told my the, I mean the, the animators in the Gaston unit don't worry about the drawing you're going to get all hung up and it's not going to be I mean, you're not going to be able to do fluid animation. Let me let me focus on the drawing afterwards, like all the details and the subtleties. Just take care of the acting, even if it's rough and and raw. Yeah. You you need to nail that first, you know, and that needs to communicate like how he's feeling in the scene and to, to take care of the acting. So they did that, and it usually would look a little off model and change and strange. So before then. Before those scenes would go to the cleanup de- department, who would take a new sheet of paper, new sheet of paper, and redraw the character in, in fine line. I would do some drawings uh, over those poses and show how the character is to to be drawn here, how the anatomy works, yeah. the hands, the face, and then that sort of led to uh, uh, the character looking fairly much the same throughout yeah. the movie. But you have to step in for quality can control and do that sure absolutely and and as a supervising animator you also have a lead cleanup artist that you tend to work with right i mean that right i I think the supervising animators it may change from film to film but but each supervising Mm -hmm. animator has uh a lead cleanup artist that's also working on that same character Right. So you, right. you know, so just so our listeners know, I mean, there's multiple artists that are touching the same character in the same scene uh, and, do, and doing different aspects of it. So you you did have a, 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 a one person you like to work with, uh, 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 I'm assuming. Yes. Yeah. And that, that person was Kathy Bailey. Yeah. And she had already helped me with uh, Gaston was her first cleanup assignment with uh, Tony De La Rosa, they, they both did w- were the heads of cleanup on King Triton, and then Kathy uh, uh, then also helped me on Prince and the Pauper, doing one wonderful cleanup drawings of Mickey, always respecting volumes. She was great with volumes; yeah. nothing was, was ever flattened out that came from her desk, and a, v- a very thorough artist. So uh, she also helped me to make sure that Gaston. Pretty, pretty much looks the same in each scene. Uh, wonderful artist. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with you. Um, mm-hmm. I've known Kathy for many, many years. I was at Cal Arts with her. Uh, very talented artist. Um, 
so uh beauty and the beast i mean when that film released that really galvanized the uh date movie aspect of animation it was really starting to come into its own at that point and the if you remember we the studio was getting reports that evening screenings of beauty and the beast were filling up with adults uh and and also Beauty and the Beast was the first animated feature film to break a hundred million dollars at the box office. And it and, broke and, that ceiling. And then it was the first one to be nominated for an Academy Award. Exactly. Competing with live competing with live action films, yes. even. Yeah, it, it well, I mean, it was nominated with four live action movies. So Beauty and the Beast, an animated feature film, is is nominated for Best Picture at the Motion Picture Academy, which was really phenomenal. And I think you know, we we all knew something was starting to happen with this renaissance of animation with, you know, Who Framed Roger Rabbit and, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, the uh, Little Mermaid and uh, what American Tale did out uh, in theaters. Uh, the popularity was starting to build, but it was really, I think, galvanized here on Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, I think with each... Which- with each movie, we actually saw a bigger box office. It was actually escalating. And, and Disney was rebuilding, really, their, audi- their audiences. And, yeah. and the audiences trusted Disney to come up with something good. They, Disney was then the studio that wouldn't disappoint right. on all levels, on all levels. Yeah, I mean, you you had uh, Little Mermaid did close to, I think, 90 million at the box office. Then Beauty and the Beast breaches a hundred million dollars and then we go on to aladdin uh and let's talk about that for a second because you were supervising animator jafar and Mm -hmm. really jafar is an evil character from the get-go he's not like gaston who is this arrogant guy that you you kind of like because he's full of himself but when you (laughs) see when you see jafar you're like okay that guy's got a black heart i mean he's evil Right, yeah. he's up to he's up to no good, and uh, it kind of freed me up a little bit. You know, again having to be somewhat careful with the drawing of Gaston. That wasn't the case with Jafar. Just like you said, he 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 looks like a bad guy and he acts like a bad guy. So uh, the, the concept was much simpler. Uh, and I designed him, of course, with the help of others, some visual development people. I, I designed him in a stylized way where it would be a lot of fun to, to draw him and make him talk, invented some mouth shapes that look sort of weird, but they would go along with the voice recordings of actor Jonathan Freeman. You know, so I was, uh, I was just letting, letting loose on that character and because uh, he was so much more stylized. What was at the beginning a little intimidating was the work by Eric Goldberg, who had started on the genie. Yes. Before any animator had come on to Aladdin, Eric had already done uh, some test animation, and even, even some uh, scenes for the film uh, of the genie. And he was in, uh, influenced by uh, New Yorker cartoonist Al Hirschfeld, uh, who has these flowing lines, you know, so there was nothing chiseled or complicated about the design of that character. Everything was just one big flow. So we needed to tune in on that. So that wasn't so so scary. I thought I thought we could we could do all that, but it was just the quality of the animation. Because when I saw those scenes with Robin Williams as the voice, I said that 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 movie should be called the Genie Movie. Yeah, I mean he is uh, such a 
incredible character, basically asking myself, what am I going to do with Jafar to contrast that? You know, I mean, what can I bring to the table? Because the genie is taking up all the air in the room. Yeah, so yeah. It was a little, a little intimidating, but you just move on and you analyze your your sequences and you give it all the acting juice and the personality you can and hope it's going to pay off. Did you um did you feel that you you know when you were designing Jafar? I mean, you were you were looking at the Al Hirschfeld reference that was being used for the genie and that sort of style of line. Uh, obviously, it it had to have influenced you in the design of Jafar, and you had to incorporate some of that uh, fluidity uh, of line into the character just because he's in the movie, right? I mean, yeah. we did was, we actually don't. That? The whole crew was, I mean, the animation crew was very smart, I would have to say, because we, for the first time, we did this officially where, uh, you know, um, Glenn would take his Aladdin drawing and Mark Ken would take his Jasmine designs. I would take my Jafar drawings and everybody would put up their early designs. And we put them up on the same wall and we would just compare, basically asking ourselves, do all these characters belong in the same movie or are some of them from different worlds? Different, yeah. different movies. We asked ourselves that question and then there were some adjustments. They were minor though, because we all knew about the Hirschfeld influence yeah. and what we should consider in our design. But uh, some uh, characters need to be adjusted slightly. And uh, But we really wanted that a unified look for the whole cast. And, and I think we also got it. Did you, you know, talking about, you know, incorporating Al Hirschfeld into, uh, you know, the that style into the characters, uh, when you look at all of these Disney animated features, each one has its own look to it, its own style. Mm -hmm. uh, as an artist, as an animator, um, do you have, uh, uh, I don't want to say difficulty, but uh, is there a period of transition coming off of one picture and going on to another where you have to adjust your drawing style. Yeah, you do. And there's usually, uh, again, for lack of a better word, uh, like a graphic hangover. Yeah, yeah. Where, where your your new character design still echoes what you had done. So uh, I noticed that very consciously when I went, uh, not to jump ahead here, but when I was designing Scar for The Lion King, um, my first drawings, he had these Jafar eyes, you know, <laughs> I just couldn't, I just couldn't help it because uh, yeah. those to me had been evil looking eyes. And uh, I tried those for this lion and, uh, I, but I caught myself going like, now this is a different movie, a different character. Yeah. You're still evil, but you, you can't have this sort of, uh, these expressions and that, that sort of line work on on scar that he did, just did with uh, jafar uh so absolutely you have to work through that to get into the new style that, that's why we do these design there's a period of design and then th there's a period of test animation you have to work yourself into the style of the new film into the new film yeah yeah and, and uh i i want to ask you this question uh, and maybe mm -hmm. this is our last question for this session uh, but I'd like you to talk a little bit about why you're doing all these evil characters. You 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 seem to have this streak of villains 
that that you did and, and not all of them are villains uh but you went through this period with gaston jafar scar did you feel like you were getting typecast at all into doing villains did you consciously try to break out of that uh g- give me your thought process on that no i was thrilled to get those villain parts because villains are often the the best parts they're the most expressive they are the one. The villains are the ones who motivate the story. The villains want change. They want things their way. You know, uh, the heroes usually want to have everything calm and everybody's happy and that kind of thing. But it's the villain who who drives the story. You know, who uh, uh, causes trouble. And causing trouble is a lot of fun to animate. Uh, and uh, so, but it just happened very um, gradually uh, after I'd done um, Gaston. Ron Clemens and John Mas- Masker on Aladdin asked me to do the villain again. They said, we like what you did with Gaston here. We have another villain. Maybe you you want to try him. He's different. And so they they, they talked to me about the, the character concept of Jafar. So I was thrilled. But by the time we got to Aladdin, I mean, to, sorry, by, by, by the time we got to Lion King, I thought, surely, surely I'm not going to do the villain here because I had to, I've just done two. It's going to be somebody else's turn, and I thought, okay, maybe I'll, I'll I'll look at Mufasa or Simba or some of the other characters, and then word got around the studio that they had just hired Jeremy Irons as the voice for Scar, mm. and I had a chance to listen to some of some of the the tracks that he had already read, and I got so frustrated. I thought, oh, this is just too good to be true. Those those readings were so rich and intelligent and yet Jeremy Irons has a way with words he can make everything sounds like it's full of personality and uh, uh, again thinking it really wouldn't be my turn again to do the villain but then in the end I went to the directors Rob Minkoff and uh, Roger Alice and I said I know I know I've just done two villains but I just just want to tell you one thing I listened to some of Jeremy's voice readings and uh I think I can do something cool with this character. Just want to say that. That's it. And they looked at each other and, and, and just said, flippantly, they said, well, we kind of had you in mind anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, no, hooray, hooray. <laughs> and and, and with, with Scar, I, I'm going to ask a couple more questions because I have to since we're talking about it. Um, with The Lion King, did this sort of, was this a throwback for you to when you first sat in the theater in Germany and saw um, uh, the Jungle Book? Did, did this picture bring back any memories of that and, and any kind of excitement for you? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, it was my first four-legged animal. Uh, and that that's unique. I mean, people out there have to know that when you're dealing with a dog, an animated dog or, or a big cat or a four-legged animal in general, you're, you're acting, it will be different. You don't have the hands anymore to yeah. gesture with. And hands are so important in, in acting. And I remember often uh, with, with Gaston or Jafar, I would act out a scene in front of a mirror and watch what my hands would do and the pers- perspective of that and, and then, uh, then apply that in the animation. You couldn't do that with Scar. He was always on uh, four legs, and uh, in in other words, I couldn't act it out in front of a mirror. Yeah. So 
So you, you're sort of handicapped that way. Uh, but um, what had happened was uh, just a little bit of animation history. I'm going to make this short. Uh, we had done one movie after the other with the same crew, from The Little Mermaid to Beauty and the Beast to uh, Aladdin, and we only had 12 months to animate each movie. Yeah. So it was kind of taxing, to put it mildly. It was it was stressful. We had a lot of fun doing this, but it was very stressful. And that led us to, to voice those concerns to management. We had a retreat in Long Beach off the, the lot uh, at the Queen Mary, an old ocean liner that is stationed there. And we just talked about our issues that we had with people like Roy Disney, Jeffrey Katzenberg, Peter Schneider, they were all there, all of management. And we just had concerns and we brought that up that we, we're getting a little too, too stressed here doing these films. And uh, they listened and they said, okay, this is like a week or two later, management said, this is what we're gonna do. We're going to take this unit, you guys, and we're going to, uh, we're going to uh, kind of, um, gosh, I'm going, to, we're going, to, we're going to have to cut this. We're, go we're going to take half of, no. We're going to split, we're going to split. The we're going to in half, yeah. Yeah, we're going to split so, the units. So management basically said, we're going to split the one unit that you are guys, you guys are right now in half. And then we're going to flesh out each unit. We're going to hire on more people. So we have we end up having two feature units. Yeah. And each one will handle a film. And you will have a year and a half to animate a film. Right. It made a huge difference in the end. But the first two movies where this applied were Pocahontas and The Lion King. Correct. And surprisingly, management actually uh, gave us a choice, meaning the animators, which movie would you like to work on? We have two coming up after Aladdin, there was even a wine and cheese evening where there was the Pocahontas unit yeah. and they had, they had already wonderful pastels and paintings by Mike Gabriel about the, the art direction and the story. Yeah. They, they already had something kind of solid on Pocahontas. Uh, on Lion King, not so much. There was no real story yet. It was just about uh, lion cub growing up and learning about life. like. They labeled it, some people labeled it sort of sarcastically, Bambi in Africa, you know. Right, and, right. Because uh, we didn't have a, a solid story yet. And uh, and, and there, was, there, there was some trouble with the story on Lion yeah. King early on. Yeah, uh, it wasn't coming know, together. It, was, yeah, it wasn't was as strong. Director change outs and things like that mm -hmm. that happened. Um, right. and, and a lot of people were gravitating to Pocahontas. Most of them. Most right. people, again, given a choice, most people ran to... Pocahontas up after they had their wine and cheese. And uh, I was there. I, I said, no, because of Jungle Book, this is going to be four-legged animals. I I want to try this. I want to do, do this. Hopefully, they're going to come up with a great story. And But I want to be associated with The Lion King. And uh, Ruben Aquino was also uh, attached early on to stay on Lion King. I think Mark Henn was originally cast for to be part of the Pocahontas crew, but he came back. Right. He, uh, he got reassigned and, and joined Lion King. Uh, but we were still very, there were very few supervising animators with experience. And I remember going into Peter Schneider's office and voicing my concerns. And I said, these are going to be semi-realistic animals that have to move with real weight and, and, and they have to be solid and beautifully drawn. And I don't think we have the crew with the people we have right now to, to do this. And Peter said, well, we're just going to give some 
younger people, some assistants, animating assistants, a chance to rise to the occasion and supervise a character for the first time. And I thought, well, that this sounds great because a lot of things can go wrong. Sure. When, when you go that route, uh, luckily it didn't, and people did rise to the occasion. But, uh, yeah, uh, Pocahontas was the one that was labeled the A movie, Lion King, the B movie, uh, for a long time. And then things changed. They really did. And I think we're going to stop here and we're going to pick up on that in part three, because I think this is going to be this is going to be you're up there with Don Hahn now because we've done three parts with Don Hahn. So now we're going to do three parts with Andreas Deja. So I'm going to say thank you, uh, Andreas. I almost said Andy. And I'm one of the call me Andy, call I, me Andreas. I, I, I'm one of the few people who called you Andy uh for many, many years. Uh, but publicly I try and say Andreas. <laughs> because <laughs> way. If, because if I say Andy, people go, Andy, who's Andy? You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh Andreas, I want to thank you for being on the Skull Rock podcast. And we're gonna look forward to next week uh for part three, uh, when we have you back. Sounds great. Thank you. Your attention, please. Now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your main street to the world of Disney. The stories go on and on. I could just sit there and listen forever. <laughs> you know, same here. And, and and I have to tell you, you know, it's so great having these conversations. They bring back so many memories. And again, you know, even though, uh, you know, Andreas and I worked on a lot of the same movies, we had different experiences and different perspectives. You know, we, we experienced different things because we were in different areas of production. Uh, and uh, he's such a nice guy. I mean, it's just so great to continue the conversation. And we still have parts three and four coming up uh and that's why we called november 2022 andreas deja month i love it it's not deja vu y'all we're having more new stories to be told here you see i mean i'm horrible with the puns dave i I apologize (laughs) kind of sorry but not sorry but anyway i'm looking forward to that dave once again don't forget gang you can see dave at the ctn expo that's happening this week um once again dave you want to go ahead and plug that real quick yeah, the CTN Expo is happening. Basically, it's it's Friday, uh, November 18th through Sunday, November 20th. Although Thursday, November 17th in the evening is sort of the official opening of the Expo. And they're actually doing a screening of the 40th anniversary of The Secret of NIM. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, and, and one of our past guests, John Pomeroy, is going to be on a panel. It's going to be moderated, I think, by Jerry Beck. That's awesome. Uh, so there's a lot of great stuff going on uh, this coming weekend. So if you're in the area, come by the CTN Expo. And definitely, if you're if you're there, stop by the Skull Rock Podcast booth uh, and uh, have a chat with us. I love it. I love it. And don't forget, gang, also, if you love Disney and pop culture, be sure you like this show. We, If you love it, put a like in there. Give us a thumbs up. And if you absolutely can't live without us, go ahead and leave those five-star reviews and if we've deserved it. So thank you so much for that. Follow us there on all of our socials as well, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, we're also on Twitter at Skull Rock Pod, Skull Rock Podcast. And don't forget to drop us those emails for future shows and for questions. We'll be glad to answer them in a future episode. Dave, 
at SkullRockPodcast.com or aljohn at SkullRockPodcast.com. Don't forget to also check out our awesome links because we have Sure, we have, oh, Dave, I, I know that you hate to plug your books, but go ahead and plug your books. Uh, you know something? I, I'm glad you mentioned that. I have to tell you <laughs> that my Nightmare Before Christmas visual companion, the Nightmare Before Christmas visual companion, is actually up for pre-order on Amazon. Ooh. So you can actually go to Amazon for Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas Visual Companion, which I wrote, uh, and that's coming out. It's releasing July 4th, 2023. Yes. Uh, so do that. Uh, if, you start, if you're starting to think about the holidays and a little bit of shopping, swing by theoldmillpress.com. Uh, there's plenty of great books that'll make wonderful gifts at theoldmillpress.com. And as always, you can take a look at davidbossard.com uh, if, you if you're interested in some uh, Disney history. There's plenty of articles. There's also free stuff. You can get signed book plates and coasters and all kinds of stuff. So check out davidbossard.com. And with that, I will say we will see you back here next week on the Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Al John Goh, co-host of the Disney List podcast as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock podcast here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel, vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times so they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next disney cruise disney park trip adventures by disney they can contact me at theme parks and cruises at gmail.com i'm kristen hetzel vacation planner world traveler disney foodie and theme park fan I'm Al John Go. I'm the husband who's also Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel Comics fan. And together, we host the Disney List Podcast. Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list, rankings, and more. That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. Even stream us on Sorcerer Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook, The Disney List Podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com.